This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Nick Marks. Nick is one of the world's leading experts on happiness and the founder of Friday Pulse, a tool to help organisations find out how happy their people are at work. He also created the Happy Planet Index to show which countries have the happiest people. And he spent years thinking about how to be happy and the relationship between happiness and success. So in this episode, we talk about how to be happy. He talks about his mentor, a Chilean economist who changed his life, his five ways to well-being and much more. This is Nick Marks. I'm here with Nick Marks. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Very good. Nice to meet you, Graham. We're here to ask the bigger questions about work. Uh, let's start with your your day job and, and what you're currently doing. So Friday Pulse, helping organisations to really focus on happiness and, and figure out what that means in, in the workplace. Do you want to just start with Friday Pulse and um, and just explain what, what you guys do? And so I'm a statistician by trade. So um, I'm looking to create a measure that is useful uh, for organizations. And basically, our measure is happy weeks, which is, you know, people had a good week. And um, and that builds up into a metric for an organization that allows them to track how every team is, how, um, how the whole organization is. And it's very, very responsive. I mean, most organizations don't have a responsive people metric. Most of their people metrics are quite lagging. So there'd be, you know, obviously a look at things like retention and things like that, but they might look at engagement, but tend to do that in once a year survey, maybe once a quarter now, some organizations. So I want to create something that's very at the moment. And, you know, when you start collecting that data, you know, you can see the impact of COVID running through yeah, because right. you see the sort of yeah. dip and, and a rise. And, and what creates very interesting with the data is that effectively the shape of the curve is the resilience. You know, we all have setbacks. Uh, every organization has a setback. We've obviously had a global setback. How quickly do we recover? So that I, I find the data really interesting and it, and it allows for the fact that, you know, happiness, which is sort of like a good, bad signal, it ebbs and flows. We have good weeks, we have bad weeks. And in fact, I sometimes think about the fact that there's just different wavelengths to happiness. You can have like, you know, three moods in a morning in an hour, you know, and then, you know, and then you've sort of got a feel to the day and then you've got a feel to the week and, and, and even the year and the decade, you know, uh, we're old enough that we've probably had good and bad decades in our life. And it's like, you know, I mean, of course, not every day in a bad decade is, is bad, but there's a sort of, you know, you put a year down and like this and you, you know, and so, so I, I, by measuring it weekly, you start to get into that, the way that it's very fluid. Um, and that's what I really like about it. And we, we create, useful data for team leaders and organizations to to understand the happiness in their organization. You know, when I think about sort of leadership and management, like the idea of kind of walking around the office, you can sometimes just get that sort of underlying gut feel around whether people feel up or whether it feels a bit more down or a bit low. And I guess what you're doing is really taking um, a lot of that and, and actually just making it more accurate and more measured and more more sort of systemic as 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 part of the toolkit for a manager or leader? I think that our feelings are data. 
you know, actually, mm, yeah, sometimes yeah. we learn something about the world when we start feeling it. I mean, there's occasions yeah. when we, we don't realize we're angry till we start saying something. <laughs> and it's like we, we, we've actually felt it before we've, in a way, become conscious of it. And so what we're really trying to do is saying, look, everyone in your organization is a sensor. They're sensing things all the time. Let's capture some of that. And we capture it in a very simple metric, which is how happy people's weeks are. But, you know, I, I think it's very, very useful. And you don't really need to go much more complex than that. I mean, yeah. yes, we go into deeper dives where we look at what are the drivers of happiness at work. And we do those uh, maps. We do them every quarter in Friday Pulse. So we do a weekly cadence and a quarterly cadence, a more deeper dive. But that probably gives you as much information as you really need to know what's going on in your organization. So we try and keep it very simple, very easy. But yeah, and and it's um, and you know it used to be uh, managing by walking around. I mean that's what my dad did. My dad used to be a CEO and he'd walk around the, the factory floors and he'd walk around this and he, you know and and uh, he'd smile at everybody and but you know but he would always try and sense it that way. This does absolutely give you that frontline feedback digital format every week. And so if I'm an employee in an organization and I, and I, and I get the link to fill in that survey, what, one thing I found interesting when I was reading up about it is it takes less than two minutes to do this for the whole week. So what questions am I being asked in that two, win, two minutes? What, what's my experience as a user of it? We ask people, you know, how you felt at work this week from very unhappy to very happy. So that's the good, bad signal. And then we just ask people to share effectively what you would do in a sort of retrospective if you're a tech team or something like that, which is you ask people what's gone well and what hasn't. Uh, but we're talking about the culture rather than their work. We try and very much make it about people's experience. So I, I've experimented with lots of other questions like asking, you know, have you had a good week or not? And and people give you an answer, but it, it tends to be more about what they're doing rather than how they feel. So I wanted to get it into right. how they feel. So we yeah. use that. But then we ask them like, what's a success for you this week? Uh, have you got anyone you want to thank? You know, we I think that we're not... We don't express our gratitude enough, and I, you know, uh, and it's, and it, so we just try and put it in front of people. You know, maybe you want to thank a colleague for something they've done, and it's just notes. It's no, it's not sending flowers, it's not sending vouchers. It's just doing that, and particularly with so many teams more virtual these days. Uh, but even in teams that are together, you know, people get a little thank you note, and you get this what we call positivity resonance, where you know they feel good for being thanked. I feel good for thanking, actually. And then if yeah, you we yeah. bring it into a team meeting on a Monday so that everyone knows that I thanked Emma or whatever it is. Uh, and so it, it, it's a sort of shouting out. And then we also allow a space for people to share a frustration, a concern, or have an idea. And we, those are all written and, and, and they're named. Uh, when you answer our digital questions, our, 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 our numeric questions, they're anonymous. When you put a note, it's named. And we fold those up into, uh, wrap those up into um, a team meeting for the team leads. We package data for them into sort of PowerPoint for them so they can talk about it on a Monday. And we, we stack the data up to the, to the more senior teams. There's this one other thing we do on a Friday. It's just at the end, we ask a silly question. You know, we're, we're a product about happiness at work. So, you know, we'll ask, you know, are you an early bird or a night owl? You know, do you like the beach or the mountain or whatever it is? And, and, and it's just a sort of polling bit of fun. Obviously, you then have, access to this data on a real macro level so do you find that you know when there's a uh you know huge like england team winning in the football or something do you get like everybody's happier that week or when the sun comes out like are there some interesting little findings like that that you that you figure out we obviously we saw covid hit last march and that was a massive drop and that came across all of our clients our clients are mainly the uk north america some european couple of southern hemisphere but mainly north we saw that hit in our data probably there are some weather effects 
you know, if I look at the weekly average, it, it bumps along. And I, I've never actually really tried to tie that to weather forecasts. But when you look at the UK, so YouGov collect data every week on the mood of the nation. And you definitely see um, weather effects there. So and you see so you see the effects of lockdowns these this time, you know, Christmas went up and then, you know, January, February was rubbish, wasn't it? And then, you know, right through March, April with the bad weather. And then when the weather started to pick up, even though lockdown moods started to go up a bit. So weather definitely in the UK at least has a has a big impact. Yeah. Less so in California where it's just hot and sunny every day or something, right? Well, two of my team are in India at the moment. Um, they're, 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 they're ethnically Indian and they went back for summer lockdown. And, and it's just like, oh, another sunny day, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of Think Productive's uh, sort of ways of working, my company, is that when we have our daily huddle, we're asking people, you know, what are you stuck on? And it just creates this environment around, um, you know, it being an acceptable thing that you will be stuck sometimes and that that's part of the thing. Um, do you find that there are other things that organizations are maybe asking you for or that you're sensing where people are just they're not asking those questions or it's sort of causing sort of issues within the culture um, by just us not fronting up to stuff or not kind of asking the right kind of questions as a team? Questioning is such a healthy process, you know, and and um, and I don't think most people do it enough. It's very much in my DNA. I, I trained as a therapist when I was young. So, you know, that idea of reflecting is is very much instilled in, in, in what I do. And I think that whenever we go, we do a rollout in an organization, there's always skeptics. There's always see, some of the senior leader team that are skeptical. They think, and they, some of it is uh, it's fear, fear of opening a Pandora's box. You know, if you mm. ask people how they feel, oh my God, these nasty things are going to come out. And, and, and actually, it's the nasty things that are there, the better out than in. Um, yeah, so you know uh, <laughs> they fester otherwise don't they yeah. they rot and they you know and they undermine things so so and then you know actually when they start actually understanding that also in there is all this good stuff that they're not actually you know getting out and, and so so we're really very much sort of designed in the idea to be i mean you could say biased towards the positive but certainly based on the same similar ideas to appreciative inquiry and things like that where yeah. you you're looking to accentuate the positive but it's because in, in 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 life and in business, you know, we tend to think about the negative stuff more. We tend to think about the next challenge. We don't tend to just stop and pause and think, "That's a good job. We did that well," you know. And 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 even and sometimes there's lessons to be learned from what's gone well. You know, you can learn from what's gone well as well as what's gone wrong. I mean, people get obsessed with, "Oh, you've got to find out why you felt better." Yeah, but also find out why you you did well. That's that's yeah, good too. Yeah, that's so uh, true. And 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 uh, but also just the human thing of like, yeah, you know, pat on the back, good job. We 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 we're much more motivated by that than money. I mean, not to say you have to take money off the table. You know, I sometimes ask question around fair pay, but it it it's not so much you know the extra bit of money that you get. It's, it's much more do you get on with your team and do you feel appreciated? Yeah, and just be feeling feeling valued is such a huge thing in life, isn't it? You know, just feeling like what you're doing matters and ha has an importance. As someone who says, when when people feel valued, they add value, and it's this reciprocity in the whole situation. You know, if you and in a way, if you're thinking about happiness at work, you're you're turning the sort of 
psychological contract really of the relationship between the employee employee on the head you know normally it's like how much can i get out of you paying you the same money and this is like how can i create your great job so you flourish and you actually get more back that way but it does take you to go that sort of orthogonal route and and had the courage to go that actually we're no, we trust that if we give people the space they will flourish i don't know if this is a great segue or a or, or a rubbish segue you, you can you, you can comment um but that whole thing about feeling valued and 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 then adding value um so you went to work for an american management consultant <laughs> my first job yeah you write about it saying i i went for that job because i thought it was difficult to get so it would be a really important thing and then you didn't enjoy your time there so i'd just I'd love to hear um, why, what didn't you like about it? And then um, what did you learn from that for the rest of your career? I mean, I was that arrogant at university that it was, it was you know, we had milk rounds there. I mean, God, it's changed, doesn't it? You know, and people would come around and, and um, I, I was, at, I was I'd been to Cambridge and I went to Lancaster to do a master's and they came around to Lancaster and I did a very specialist thing called operational research, which is basically systems thinking and decision making. And Anderson Consulting came up to um, now Accenture and everyone said that's the hardest job. So arrogant me, it was the only job I applied for. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and the, it was, the reason was I didn't really know what I wanted to do, you know. And I, I, I so they said that was the hardest. And, and, and my tutors were going, well, what about British Steel or NHL? Yeah, no, I don't know. I'll, I'll that one, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, they, and then they, they were almost cross with me that I got the job because I was the only one in the year that got the job. <laughs> uh, I, think one, I think one other guy actually got offered, offered it, but he, he didn't go. Um, he was super bright, super, super bright. Anyway, um, and then I came in town to London. And, and, and the thing with Anderson was that it was a great experience in lots of ways because they, you had this cohort that joined together. So you had a great bonding. You went into your first jobs. And I got a plum first job, which was I was um, doing marketing software. Very, very new stage. I could get a little CD-ROM and get people's postcodes and find their address. And they were blown away with this. Mm. And it was great. And I, I had a great time. But what I knew was what was happening to all my peers. And they were being sent up to north of England on big NHS projects or this or that. I just got engaged. I didn't want to go to the north of England. I've just got a house in London with my girlfriend, soon to be wife. And I, I, I didn't want to go. And so, um, and I just could see that people were taking a certain way. I mean, like I got, I'd get... They'd had like almost like school sort of my kids used to get good order marks and bad order marks, but used to sort of get those. And, you know, I'd get these good orders ones and things. Then I got a bad one for having too long hair. And I just thought, I thought, you know, really, you know, my hair wasn't this long, um, but it was, I, you know, I was really like, is that my most important thing about me? You know, and, and I'm always been a slightly um, one of my publicists once described my look as a bit undone, Nick. You're a little undone. <laughs> <laughs> she was very good. I was like, okay, yeah, that's probably I kept that. She says, you're not quite so unkempt, but you're just undone. Anyway, um, and I, 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 and I, I just didn't, didn't, you know. So I, I, and I also was starting to figure out that I was interested in sustainability issues and things like that. And I thought maybe I should apply my intelligence to that. So that's kind of the way I went. Yeah. That whole thing with being sent off to places. I remember actually working with a couple of people from Accenture for a little while. And um, it was this whole thing of you'd just be in Basingstoke for a month and then you'd be in Manchester and then you'd be, and it, I, yeah, I remember just thinking, you know, the lifestyle of it was so all encompassing. You just have to kind of throw yourself into it. And actually the, the two people that I'm talking about were really good at just going out to, 
a pub or a nightclub or a sort of city square and just talking to strangers which I just thought was just you know just totally out there but it was like that was how they would get their social life because they weren't sort of surrounded by um you know friends and family and networks and stuff yeah I, I, I it was a lot to do with the fact I was engaged you know I, I wanted to live with Marie you know and it's like I, I didn't want to have that so yeah that might bring us nicely on you start to think about environmental um issues and uh thinking about happiness in that kind of way and um you write about this um person that you came across manfred max neef correct um and just the way you the way you write about him is just really intrigued me so it it sounds like you went along to see a talk of his and then were just totally blown away by his way of thinking and his ideas yeah, I, I handed in my notice at Accenture and I didn't have another job to go to. And my dad was very concerned about me. So, and he he took me to a talk by Manfred. And uh, my dad was um, you know, a business leader and he, he was quite into things like spirituality and business and uh, alternative ways of thinking. And so he would, he would go to these talks. So he took me to see Manfred. And he'd, he'd obviously met Manfred before because I remember him introducing himself and Manfred introduced and uh, Manfred started to talk about um, language and about how uh, we didn't have the right language to talk, to, to discuss the issues that we face. So the, the dominant language of today is, is the economic language he was talking about. But our major issues were about um, sustainability and, and he came from Latin America. So there's a lot of persistent poverty ideas he wanted to talk about. Um, and, and he said, you don't have the language for it. And, and he started to put forward the idea that we should talk about the language of human need rather than of sort of dollars and pounds. And, and I just was like, wow, you know, and, and I, I do say it's, 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 it's the talk that changed my life, but of course I was ready. I was ripe in lots of ways, yeah. you know, one talk would yeah. be quite unhinged for one talk to change your life. But I was searching, you know, the reason I left, you know, Accenture Anderson's was that I wanted to do something with more social value. I hadn't really identified what yet. And anyway, the opportunity came to work with Manfred and I, I did that for, for three or four years. I mean, mainly at a distance, I went out to Chile quite a few times. He was Chilean. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was, it, I learned a lot from him. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote was that um, he was the person who made you realise that none of us asked big enough questions. Yeah, he wrote this great paper on them. Um, I wrote some great papers, but uh what was it about issues of uh, i think it was called a stupid way of life but it, the, 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 he, he was very fascinated with stupidity he thought it was the fastest moving human um human trait <laughs> not intelligent stupidity anyway um i don't know these rights but he, he had interesting ideas he wrote another one on the pruning of language about cutting away words so that you can get to yeah, the truth right uh, it might have been in that paper but he talked about issues of primary and secondary importance so mm. an example he would give is that you know people get very worried about whether their party gets in power and they think that if people like them were in power, the world would be better. But we sort of tried every range from left to right to middle to this, you know, and we still seem to have problems. So he said, maybe the problem is the structure of power, not who is in power. And so it's that sort of thing. And, and in that way, I think he got me engaged in very big questions. And, and, and I think in my own way, I, you know, I found my way to happiness you know, through quality of life statistics, through health statistics, through sustainability statistics, through, you know, well-being, 
into happiness because in a way happiness in its nebulous word it uses but it's you know it it sort of gets closer to what people want from life and and therefore can you can you can you help them with that are there some i mean i love that thing about stupidity um and it strikes me that that could just in itself be a, a sort of like a lens that you could apply to so many topics like look for the stupid stuff and then suddenly it starts to open things up do you think there are other things like that that would help to help people to ask bigger questions so someone listening to this if i was to say how how can we help them to ask bigger questions or how can you help me to ask bigger questions like what is what are some tips and tricks that you use to to help with that I've not really thought about it like that. So that's you, a big you, question, you, isn't it? Well, <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, um, I mean, you know how it is. Have you got kids? Yeah, I have one. Yeah. And how old? He's seven. He's yeah, coming up eight. So he, why is probably a word that comes out quite a lot. Is it why? Is this oh, like... yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I, my middle child was particularly curious, right? And uh, used to always ask me it you know, five whys and you're at the Big Bang, aren't you? It's like, you know, sort of, you, eventually you sort of get to a place where you kind of like, you know, it's sort of, you, you go, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think it's about uh, asking big questions is about being open to not knowing, which is quite scary. I think in lots of people, they want to know. It's like, you know, because in the end, you know, none of us really knows that we were all fools finding our way through the world, finding our path and, and just trying to, you know, avoid doing too much damage. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think that uh, people often go, you know, masking up meaning and purpose. And, things, and it, I think it's really important. But it, it it's like, uh, you can't really answer those questions. And we're all quite different. And we're, all, we're similar and we're different. And so I think it's asking bigger questions is trying to just go underneath it, ask questions. And, it, and you know, two or three, like if you say to someone, you're right. They just go, yeah. And, you know, then you go, and particularly during COVID, I was doing this, you know, no, really, are you, you know, and, uh, and you can immediately open something, but the second, it takes two or three to open up that space. And so don't take people's first answers, I think would be one way to get to bigger, deeper yeah. stuff. And yeah. and then, you know, when you want to go to, so it's sort of bigger, which is deeper, and there's bigger, which is higher. And, you know, so there's sort of that, that you know, um, and, um, and it's sort of seeing behind that veil Another thinker I like, I don't know if you know him, is Stafford Beer. Do you know Stafford Beer? No. Stafford Beer was a systems thinker. He, he was one of the founding fathers of what's called cybernetics. He was very active in the 60s and 70s. He used to be the in, in British Steel, actually, uh, you know, helping them with how they designed all the systems that made the steel. He's a great thinker, great, great thinker. Anyway, he wrote a book called Think Before You Think. Huh. And the parameters for which you sort of want to approach a problem, think about that before you think about it. Mm. So don't just rush in. And as a statistician, you know, as an old statistician now, you know, I worry sometimes about the big data world because I don't think people think enough before they start analyzing the data. They've got so much data, they've got so many toys to play with, they can see patterns. I don't really think enough about why they're doing it or what they're trying to achieve. I mean, I'm not a brilliant statistician, you know, technically, you know, I actually, I always work with better statisticians than me, uh, technically, but what I can see, I think somehow is how things connect together and what I'm looking for. So, you know, you know, some of the things that I've designed over the years, you end up creating quite something quite simple. I mean, just like about happiness at work or things, create something quite simple because that will create the traction, but it takes you 
quite a while to get to that simplicity. <laughs> yeah, maybe that leads us on to a, a skill that you very much have is as just a storyteller and using data in ways that really, you know, explain the trends and get things across. And um, you did this very famous TED talk in 2010 um, talking about the Happy Planet Index. Do you want to just talk about that work? And because um, uh, that was probably the first thing I saw of yours. And um, yeah, love to just he hear that story of how all that came about. First big thing thing that just came out of the woodwork, really. Um, and, uh, so it's 2006, the first Happy Planet Index was released. And I was working at New Economics Foundation, which is a think tank in London. I, I founded their Centre for Wellbeing there. And coming with the idea that well-being was a topic coming to government uh, but no one knew how to measure it so I was like let's drive some measurement underneath it anyway we were, we were doing a project I think with WWF can't remember someone like that and not the wrestling one the uh, no no the, worldwide, the worldwide fund. Fund. Yeah. yeah god they are both the same aren't they? <laughs> no, they, read, they had to change you know the story of that is the <laughs> the wildlife no. charity sued the wrestling people and won and so, yeah, they have to change it now to WWE, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> it was definitely the environmental one. Yeah. So you were uh, the environmental one. Although I do own a Mexican wrestling mask. <laughs> you know, I do. Me and my son, we, 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 he used to play rugby. So we used to go on rugby tour and we had a black and gold rugby evening, themed evening. And I was in Mexico three weeks before and I saw these amazing black and gold wrestling things. So we went that's as cool. wrestlers. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Anyway, anyway that's a probably scared bad. everyone in the the corner shop if you were, I, you know. I, I, I would scare the anybody. They yeah. think they they think they could take me down. I think I, <laughs> I don't think I've been in a fight since I was about nine or ten. Um, anyway, um, uh, we were doing a project for them on on sort of how environment and well being came together, and and we'd written a report. It was okay, and the, the head of comms at Neff said to me, she said. Um, like I really, you should have something a bit more statistical in here. You're a statistician, you know. Could you not do something? And um, of course, what I really wanted to do was a big survey where you'd look at people's environmental behaviour and their well-being, and you bring it together. But we didn't have the budget for that. And I, I had, I was very active in the well-being welfare. There was an indicator called Happy Life Years, which is um, happiness and and life expectancy brought together. So it's quality adjusted life expectancy. And I um, and and I've seen Rude Feenhoman, who's the guy that developed it, and he said, "Oh well, life's never been so good uh, worldwide. Happy life has never been higher." And I turned to my friend next to me, who was a Norwegian psychologist called Yor Yor Vatissero, and I said, "Yeah, Yor, but we're slightly messing up the planet as we do it." And I think that was a seed of an idea. And then when I did this, I thought, "Well, if I took happy life years and I divided it by ecological footprint, I would have." sort of a bang for buck, a well-being for resource use, you know, how much planet are you using? And and I actually had this idea on a walk with my dog, you know, and I was at the top of a hill. And I pretty much ran down the hill and got my laptop out. And two hours later I had my first wave. I ripped, you know, data from here and there and did it and da, da, da. And and I and I and I thought, oh this is something quite interesting. So I took it to a NEF meeting, used to pitch things. And uh, uh, the policy director goes Oh, Nick, this is quite profound. Um, maybe we won't do that for the WWF. I think we might do something else for that. And, and, <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and, it, and it became the Happy Planet Index. And, and, and mm. when we released the Happy Planet Index, you know, at New Economics Foundation, we had a, we had a report that was downloaded 40,000 times. We thought it was pretty good. Happy Planet was a million in the first week. It went in 180 articles around the world. It just 
went like that. And we're actually going to we we we're, we've done a few uh, updates, uh, uh, and we're going to do a new one in October, November this year. And yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. and tell us more about how that's used because I think you're involved in is it Bhutan that does the uh, yeah through, gross through that whole national bit. happiness instead of gross domestic product or something. Yeah, I think I first went to Bhutan about 2003-4, and I, um, I, 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 I will say I advised them on how to do gross national happiness. Apparently, uh, foreigners don't advise; they they do gross. <laughs> they're quite. They're quite. Uh, uh, they didn't really operationalize my ideas. Um, I went out about four or five times. I did quite a bit of work with them. They, I mean, it, you, it's a tiny country, Bhutan. It's six hundred thousand people. They don't have a statistics agency. They don't. You know, they they rely on some UN things and. Even the population of Bhutan was unknown uh, when I was there. They then did a census and they discovered there only were 650,000. In the UN, it said 1.1 million at that time. Uh, they actually got more, well, it actually was in their self interest to inflate the population because they got more funding. So I think they were very happy for it to go up, but they then discovered it was only something like 680. Anyway, um, it, it, it's, it's, um, it, so I did advise on gross national happiness. It's an extraordinary country, Bhutan, not without its problems. It's got ethnic cleansing in the, in the south. It's got some issues, uh, but um, it, it's. Um, I don't actually like the statistics they kept. That he came up with. Uh, they didn't hit my simple, easy to use criteria, but uh, it's a very worthy effort. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to interrupt the podcast, which you know I don't do very often, and that must mean I've got something very important to share with you. So what I want to share is I've got these really big events coming up and I would love you to join me. Like, where are we at with trying to get some of those statistics more mainstreamed in places like the UK or the US? Because it it does feel like we're as far away as we've ever been, really, from thinking about the well-being and happiness of people. And we are still very focused on the economic indicators and, you know, very blunt economic indicators at that. So what what needs to change? How, like... if, if you could wave a magic wand or if, if you were sort of advising, I guess, the next prime minister or the next opposition leader, yeah, what would that look like? Well, Britain does better than most for measuring it. So when the Cameron, particularly the coalition government, were in, they, they, they really took wellbeing very seriously. And they did actually give the ONS a budget to measure wellbeing of the UK. And we do have wellbeing indicators. You'll sometimes see something about you know, what's the happiest place in Britain or what's the, um, uh, and, and it comes out every year and it goes right down to a ward level. Um, and um, so- it, I read it, a really cynical take about that one though, that um, they brought that in and then through austerity, there was a year where it really went down. So they just kind of swept it under the carpet a bit. Is, is that true or did I read that wrong? I don't know whether they did that. I mean, I left the policy world about 2012 and part of the reason was that, you know, I, I founded the Centre for Wellbeing accidentally in 2001 most of my things seem to happen a bit accidentally (laughs) and and uh and i uh one of our aims was to get the government to measure well-being and that was achieved and so i knew that if i was to stay it'd be more in critiquing and lots of committees and things like that to to do that and i it's not really my personal style 
So I I I, I left the I left the Centre for Wellbeing existed for a few years after I left, but doesn't actually still exist now, which is a shame because I think NEP could be a good critiquing voice about what's going on now. But they they let that work go for their own reasons. But um but I um so I I what would I be advising? Well I think that you know when we look at things like leveling up, we look at things like that, that you know there is leveling up to do. It's not it, it's not particularly geographically based. It's more about um uh, opportunities so you know when, when we when we see this debate around racism going on at the moment and about the fact is it's is it systemic racism is it is it just some individuals is it both i mean it's always both isn't it but um but you know th there are other factors other than race that you know that predict that that, that that create things and race is an independent factor to it so it's like the first report that came out that said oh really you know it's really about economic industry. well it's true that there's that but it's still an extra burden about 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 you know facing the uphill struggle of uh you know not being white in a in a country that's yeah, dominated by white people although we're not white are we we're pink you know i don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, but then it's um then then you know it's um uh and and then there are the people that say you know oh it's everything systemic well you know we have had improvements too so i i think people don't understand the data well enough and and don't don't report it enough but um there is data there on well-being. There, uh, there is uh, there is quite a lot we can understand about it. The well-being data is not quite so good at picking up things through time. It's okay, it does pick up things through time, but not. But it's much better at cross-sectional comparing because um, you know we 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 adjust to things that we that slightly happen. So you know, like famously, we don't have well-being in, uh, subjective well-being increase, increases with rises in GDP. Uh, even though uh, we, I, I, you know, and what's going on there, well, part of it is just a measurement artifact, which is that when we ask a question on a 0 to 10 scale, you can't go to 11, whereas you can always get the 11th thing in GDP, so you can keep growing. So there's, there's things like that, mm, yeah. which, are, which are purely measurement issues. And then there, you know, the, and what comes out of these, we see this international thing. So we see that as the World Happiness Report it says Finland was the happiest country at the moment, people go, oh, the Finns, they can't be that happy. It's always dark there, you know, and, and, and they've got suicide rates or whatever like that. What people don't understand is the reason that Finland and Sweden and Norway and Switzerland are the, are the happiest countries is because they their social safety nets stop the poor from being miserable. It's mm. not so much that the middle classes and the rich are happier, it's that the, the poorer people are much less unhappy. And that brings up your national mean. And then you just, then people go oh well, that makes sense but I mean I don't understand why people don't say that more because it's like it's about you know it's about looking after the the, the bottom 20 40 percent whether that's in income or whether educational standards all those sort of things and it's about creating mobility through the through through society so it becomes a more meritocracy and then you get to decent levels of human happiness and I've read a couple of things as well that as well as it obviously just statistically what's happening there's you know it's pulling up the data if the bottom 20 percent are happier but also that the level of inequality between you know say the richest 10 percent and the poorest 10 percent it tends to be happier when that's closer too right which i think is is also to do with just people's sense of fairness and sense of control around this stuff and all of that's going to going to play in too right absolutely and and you know we, we all compare ourselves and we're all actually you know tend to make upward comparisons rather than downward so we tend to be whatever income level we are, we tend to look up at people, you know, what's my brother-in-law earns or I used to always mm, say, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's like, you know, in, in London. So if you live in London and you've got money, it's a nice place to live. If you haven't, 
it's not only is it not easy to live in London without money, it's also you see money about you all the way, so it's right in your face. And, it, and it's the reason why urban poverty is 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 worse than rural poverty uh, in, in lots of ways. Often people who are poor in rural, uh, rural poverty have access to other resources, green space, other things. Um, uh, they might have more sense of community, which is an important factor. There might be more higher levels of trust, there might be lower levels of crime. There's lots and lots of things in that. It's still not good to be poor in the rural, but I'm just saying it's less bad than being urban poor. And and so, you know, we, we, we you know, we see that in stuff in the data. So I think the data is very strong in that way. Switching gears very slightly, but staying on the same tax. If we think if we take this back into happy workplaces and morale at work. Um, so you've done some some really interesting work and, and writing around company morale and ideas for uh, for promoting good morale. So if someone's listening to this as a as a leader, what can they do to to keep the morale high and to to notice where morale might be at. I'm obviously going to say measure it. So use something like Friday Pulse. There must be other things available too. But um, you know, is you're checking what, what how people are feeling regularly, uh, and uh, and it's about taking that seriously because in the end, if you ask people and you don't act on it, then you just lose. You just, in fact, it's worse than probably not asking them. So it's about actually, are you going to are you going to take this data and do some different things about it? Now, people can get themselves in a bind about this. I'm not going to make them happy, have I? No, it's not about making them happy. It's about creating the right environments. And of course, our experience of work is very, very proximal. It's very much who we work closely with, what we're working on. And so you can. Um, so it's a lot about team level. And, you know, um, my dad, when he was alive, he, he used to say to me when I started getting into the workspace, he said, well, whatever you do, make it work at the team level. Teams are the engine of change. They're the engines of organizations, you know, whether that's, you know, he used to be in manufacturing. He introduced quality circles around the machinery in the 70s or 80s from Japan. You know, they got them talking about what's going on with their machine because he said, I don't know what their machine is. They know it absolutely intimately. They're the ones who will know mm. if there's a problem or if there's a problem yeah. coming or they just hear a little noise changing or they've got an idea about how to improve efficiency. So you, what you want to do is to empower them to do it. So we're built very much around in supporting team leaders. What often happens with measurement tools is they undermine team leaders. They basically, you know, they, you know, an engagement survey will go, you know, oh, this team's got low engagement. It must be Steve's fault because he must be, what we try and do is let's say it's Steve. I've started there now. Um, I don't know who Steve is, and it's like um, Come you on, know, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 support Steve to have better conversations with his team because yeah. bless Steve, he might have been promoted for his technical skills or his length of service, not his people skills. So he might not be the best people leader. So let's help him be better. And so what we do is try and present to him so what we do with that data that i was saying we collect about how happy you were this week but also what's a success what's a thank you is we package it up a bit like something like hello fresh or gusto sends you a box to cook from we send him a box to run a team meeting from and in the box is you know what's gone well last week who wants to be thanked who's been thanked anyone got any frustrations we need to fix things like that so basically help make a better uh, more productive start the week meeting which you've got the right data for to deal with any team issues you had before or, or to shout out people are doing a good job. And and, and that's the way you keep my morale is very, very team-based. I mean, yes, of course, sometimes things go through a whole organization. You know, I just think, you know, people in John Lewis probably haven't woken up, you know, today great with the news that there's a thousand job losses, though there must be 70,000, 80,000, but still, still there's a lot of job losses. And, you know, and oh, 
other organizations are going to be having the same problem as we start coming out of furloughs and everything. But you know, that's not good. But much more is do you get on with your colleague you're working with? Are they yeah. great? Are they a yeah. jerk? You know, how's your boss? Do they give you good supportive feedback that helps you learn? Or do they just either say gloss over and go, oh, it's lovely, or or get very, very negative? You know, neither, neither of those are very good. So it's about creating those habits at a team level. And that's really, I think, where the magic happens. You know, there's magic here. It's about alignment. It's about aligning our own strengths, our own skills with the tasks we do, we get on with the people we work with we're working towards goals that we all want to work with that's when the magic happens when there's alignment and i think that's that's what any productivity tool must do that's what any happiness tool must do that we do you're looking to get that alignment nice um you mentioned the p word there and actually that leaves me really nicely on i was going to ask you whether the obviously the work you've done for for many years is focused on happiness and has that given you some some ways of thinking about the the sort of intersection between happiness and productivity. Like what do you see as the relationship between being happy and, and being productive? I can give you a statistical answer for that. Mm, uh, yes, please. So <laughs> <laughs> we ask our, our happiness questions on a scale of one to five, you know, very unhappy, unhappy, okay, happy. If you a team moves up half a point, it's on average 8% extra productivity. Now, how do you measure productivity? It's sometimes actually particularly the team level, but you know if you're doing something, if it's it impacts both the quantity and quality of work that people do. So people, you know, you know when we we get in the zone, flow, people would call it flow, yeah, and we we get in there and it just quickly. That's you know both about speed and quality of the work we're doing. So if people are doing a very um, defined role whether that's manufacturing, whether that's in a call center, whether that's whatever, there is some impact absolutely from happiness on the speed with which they do work, but they don't necessarily have the option to do the creative bits of it. Though call centers, there's all this stuff about tone of voice, opening up uh, better conversations with the client on the other, the customer on the other end. Sales calls, a brilliant piece of work by uh, Jeanne uh, Emmanuel Denis from Oxford University on BT call centers and how actually this goes right back to the weather when the sun shone people were happier they sold more um, mm, and yeah. uh, even working out people closer to a window or uh, you know they, they sold more when the weather was good and and that's to do with having a relaxed tone of voice uh, being open and hearing the customer more because they had no prospecting in that work they're just having a call following through to them can you sell them something or not? Um, so, so, um, so we see it in, in in those ways, and then there's the whole innovation and creativity bit, and there the impact's even bigger, which is that when we've got that baseline of psychological safety in a team, we've got teams that trust each other, that they just as you were saying about you know um, fixing. What did you say about you ask your team every Monday? You say they they. Um, uh, we, uh, one of the questions stuck. is just where are you stuck? Yeah. Yeah. So you're open to the fact that work is hard sometimes, that things mm, can go yeah. wrong. Yeah. And if you're allowed to fail, if you're not, you know, you're not planning to fail, but if failures are allowed, as in you've tried and it hasn't worked and we do something, then, you know, those are good things. And and the innovation one is massive. You know, they do experiments. It's one I always quote just because it's easy to understand, but it's called the Dunker Candle Experiment. And the psychologists, they, they set people this task. And what they do is they give them some, some uh, candle, uh, a box of matches, um, and... Um, 
a candle, some, a box for matches, something else. I forget what it is now. Anyway, um, you have to attach the candle to the wall and light it. Uh, oh, some matches and uh, uh, to tax and and you have to attach. Sorry, brain freeze. Uh, senior moment. Um, um, you have to attach the candle to the wall and light it in such a way the wax doesn't drop. Um, it's a lateral thinking thing, and you have to basically notice there's a box of tax and you enter the tax and put them on the wall. It's very easy when you know, but it's yeah. not easy when you see it. And so they get us test people, and if people are in a in a neutral mood, thirteen percent of people solve it in five minutes. If they put into a into a negative mood. 20% of people join it. That's weird. Well, when you're, when you're in a negative mood, you've got energy. So you're basically more energized than trying to do it. So if you're angry or something, you might actually solve it better than if you're totally flat. But people in a positive mood, 70%, I can't, something like 75% solve it. So right. three, four yeah. times more. And when you take that to innovation and coming up with ideas, you know how you just in a meeting and ideas are buzzing around, you know, you've got that safety and you do it. And then you know, one in 20 ideas is suddenly something that could be really helpful. And so you need that. In, so if your teams that are very creative, and if the effect is even bigger on productivity. And I think also, you know, the other thing is that the the other way around is also true, right? So um, if you're having a period of productivity, then I'm sure the morale goes up. But, you know, that focus on happiness will also lead to productivity. And I think that's the the sort the sort of key key focus for managers and leaders right is to really think about um, providing the happiness and the psychological safety and then everything good comes from that so the, the, it goes it absolutely does go both ways so if you measured financial success of a team and happiness at time one and the same at time two six months later you do get a correlation coefficient from sort of success side things going well and happiness but you get one the other way from happiness to success and it's twice as strong so basically what that means is it's a virtuous cycle, but the happiness to productivity is stronger than productivity to happiness. Interesting. Yeah. That's so cool. Incredible, actually. Um, having that as the focus of your work for so long, yeah. Yeah. What, what does that mean for your happiness? <laughs> I'm demanding. Um, uh, in, a way, <laughs> in, in a way, I prioritize. I do prioritize my... Um, I, think, I think people don't necessarily prioritize their own happiness enough. And people go, oh, that's selfish. Well, it's not a selfish happiness. It's actually very social, very, very between us. It's very, there's a whole giving part of happiness, all sorts of things. So, and I, I you know, I talked earlier on about, um, you know, Anderson consulting and getting married. Well, I'm a divorced man now. So there's, you know, well, I'm, I'm remarried, but it's, but it's like, you know, I've had my own things in there. And, you know, one of the reasons that marriage broke down was that I really recognized, although my marriage was really meaningful to me, my kids are really meaningful to me. I was not happy. Mm. And I had to make that very difficult decision because I was going to have to yeah. make it on my own because my ex was quite stuck and didn't really want to move with me. And it's like I had to make a decision to leave a marriage. And that's a very hard thing to do. But that is about, and you know, and 10 years later, very good decision, you know, in the sense that, you know, my kids are good. Uh, you know, my ex is still in her, her issues. Um and I'm a lot happier. So it's definitely a net gain for me. It's definitely a net gain for me. I don't think it was a net loss for the kids. They learned things about honesty, authenticity, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and saw us as different human beings. I think sometimes kids see two parents as one thing, one team. And yeah, they saw sure. us differently. And I think so I, I, it wasn't a bad experience, but, I, you know, I did have them every other week. I did, you know, we did, we did co-parent well together. Um, so, you know, there were things like that. But that is a decision where I have to prioritize. And then, you know, with my work, when I left NEF, I realized I got stuck and I'd been there for 10 years. And I remember talking with um, 
I'd left my marriage, but I was going out with another woman. And I, I said to her, you know, very loyal to Neff. And she said, no, you've got to be loyal to the idea. You've got a great idea about happiness at work. That's what you should be loyal to, not the, the organization that you're with. You know, they'd be fine. You go, this is, you've got this idea. Be loyal to that idea. And, you know, she actually helped me, you know, move myself out of the think tank world into the business world. It strikes me that those experiences are experiences where you're 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 really being quite good at being honest with yourself and like really appraising your own situation and wrestling with stuff that a lot of people would just leave that, like just sweep it under the carpet or just bury it or forget about it or whatever. Is there anything that you learned just about how to ask yourself the hard questions through that i think i said earlier i trained as a therapist when i was young so the therapeutic model is interesting to me and of course i returned to that occasionally so i obviously did at that stage so i mean a lot of questioning about what i'm doing why i'm doing it is i think is helpful um and and then there's some things which just sort of naturally heal don't they you know that some of it is about time and you know you know i I made some poor choices with dating afterwards. And, and and then after a while you start to think, well, you know, I like that about that person, that about that person. Yeah. And I need this for me. I need a amount of space for me and I need to walk. If I don't walk in life, I get a bit grumpy. And so, you know, you, I need someone that's sort of going to be confident. I'm going to walk and come back. I mean, that walk is trivial, but you know what I mean? It's like, if you're, you know, I'm, I, I'm, very happily married to Zoe now and I, you know one of the things was you know I'm a, I'm a speaker I, I go and travel sometimes but you know she knows that's what I do and it's like it's it's not so it, so it's it's it, it's it, it's finding out what's right right for you isn't it so I, I think it is about questioning what's right. and also being always open because you know happiness is not a destination it's a journey it's always mm. changing and you know there's bad things are going to happen to us in the future to both you and me to every listener here, you know, we're going to die in the end. We're going to have some suffering. Things are going to happen. You know, life is not all all bunches of roses. And how do we deal with that? And how do we cope with that? And and how do we make the best of this extraordinary life that we've been offered? You know, just, you know, it's here. We're here. Let's enjoy it. Absolutely. Totally hear you on that. And I'm about halfway through that thing of the dating myself. So uh, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> When we when we stop stop the record, I'll maybe we can maybe compare. Painful, some painful process though. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, but the the prize is good. <laughs> the prize is good. I'm I'm looking forward to it. One last question I wanted to ask you about. So um, you uh, had an endorsement from Tony Shea, um, ex uh, CEO of, of Zappos, who um, sadly died recently. And um, I just, as someone who'd obviously written this book, delivering happiness, and you know, he was a big inspiration to me i just wondered if you had any uh reflections on on his life and and the work of tony shay tony shay yes yeah, so i first met him about 2011 i think um and i i worked with that he, he set up a group called delivering happiness i worked for them for several years um I, I wouldn't say i knew tony i i met him a dozen times or something and, and i definitely got drunk with him and um <laughs> uh and um he he was a always a bit of a lost soul. He, you know, he, there was something about him that was a quite distant. But I knew him when he was already fantastically successful, um, and he was sort of surrounded with a lot of. He surrounded himself with a lot a lot of people. He was quite a genius. I mean, he was both strategically and culturally a genius. I mean, clearly, very very bold move to set up an online shoe company. 
mm, as he used to yeah. say, it's like the yeah. poster child of, the, of a disastrous internet idea, and he made yeah. it into a billion dollar business. Yeah. And he and he did that through culture. He had some really really wise things about the culture. What's so interesting is he couldn't apply that wisdom to himself. You know, he was a he was um, you know, and he I, I I know people that knew him very well, and 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 they would still say they didn't know him. And he was also unreachable in the last time of his life he'd got a lot of money and he got very into some certain types of narcotics and that's what killed him really mm, um yeah. not literally but he well he got caught in the fire but he was presumably high and whatever but bless him he was a lovely he was an interesting man he was very um you know he, he, he was someone that likes organizing things and seeing how they were and he, he he was very very ambitious very very visionary uh and yeah, in lots of ways, but yeah, yeah, he was, I, I don't know, I, I still feel sad about him when we, we talk about him because it was a huge shock when I heard he died. And, you know, obviously I wrote to people, but it's such a loss because I'd like to see what he did. I'd like him to have had his dark period and then come out of it. Because I, I think those people who do that redemption, he, he, I think he needed to go through some darkness. But if he could have come out, he'd have done other brilliant things. You know, he'd already left Zappos. Absolutely. He really, he sort of really struck you as someone who had lots of businesses in him at, you know, different, maybe even not businesses, but that whole like regeneration thing he was yeah. doing in Las yeah, which Vegas didn't, and stuff didn't is go perfectly, you know, but the idea yeah. was brilliant. He was a great, great. And the book is worth reading because it's, it's a very heartfelt book on, 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 on building business and quite honest, um, could have done with a slight edit in my opinion, not, not for length, but for continuity. There was some bits of it that jumped a bit. But it was he, he. He was inspirational. Inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like we've just covered so much stuff in um, in this uh, fifty four minutes, and um, so I just want to say just thank you for for being on on the show. It's been great to have you. Um, do you want to just uh, share how people can get hold of you and find out more about Friday Pulse and um, where can people go? Yeah. So um, we've released something called Friday One, Friday One dot com, which is a personal happiness at work checkup. And so if you want to go and think about your own happiness at work, it's a statistical thing that helps you reflect. A bit like those personality tests, but about happiness at work. Um, so that's something to go and do. You find me on LinkedIn. So Nick is spelled about K, it's N-I-C, Marks, and you find me. And uh, and I post every two weeks a, a blog article on basically on happiness at work, mainly. Um, and uh, yeah, FridayPulse.com, if you're interested in our tool um, for your organization, your team, we have a startup product for small and a large one for businesses and um but the main thing is just to take your own happiness seriously i think that's the tip absolutely and that feels like a really good way to finish so nick thank you so much for being on beyond busy thank you so much man so there you go nick marks and thanks as ever to emily my assistant for all of her work behind the scenes on that episode and also to pavel my producer on the show as well so what have I been up to? So it's been a weird few weeks, actually. I've been writing and sort of, um, you know, just keeping myself pretty locked away, finishing this book, which is called Kind. And it's all about kindness and leadership. There'll be lots more on the podcast along those lines over the next few months as well, as we, uh, yeah, bring a bit more of the kindness and leadership stuff into this podcast. Uh, but I've been doing that. And then, um, yeah, the last few weeks have been pretty interesting, actually. My son has been going through some quite big medical stuff. So he had a couple of operations 
last week and um you know that was all pretty badly timed in terms of my book deadline and then just when I thought it couldn't get any worse I got COVID and then I was just in bed for two weeks so yeah it's really knocked me out and still to be honest coming through the other side and um starting to get my energy back a little bit so if you're uh, out moving around in the world and um you have any doubts let me just tell you that COVID can still floor you even when you're double back so um, yeah take care out there and keeping uh, all those precautions in place masks all that stuff um, it's not gone away and you know it didn't really it, to be honest it didn't really feel like it was that different uh, having been vaccinated obviously there there are huge differences in terms of not ending up in in hospital and stuff but yeah it still floored me so um, just wanted to say that and uh, hope you're keeping safe wherever you are and uh, the other thing I wanted to just share with you is I have done a bit of sea swimming so I've been in the sea in October so I live in Brighton on the south coast those of you who don't know and um, I had actually never been in the sea in Brighton in about 10 years of living here and then a few weeks ago I got encouraged to take the plunge and check it out and yeah honestly the first time I did it the cold shock was just like phenomenal like the whole rest of the day my uh, body was just kind of my heart was kind of racing a bit and um, felt pretty odd and I had, I had to have a big hot bath at the end of the day but um, yeah it's one of those things I think is going to get easier I'll give it another go I don't know if I'll be in on Christmas day that's a big thing down here is going for a swim on Christmas day so we'll see but yeah it's all about the dry robe you've got the dry robe and uh, then you can get warm pretty quick after you get out of the sea but yeah all good so that's what I've been up to lots going on and yeah I'm just really um, getting my head down to really finish this book over the next couple of months so that's really the plan and uh, if you want to catch up with everything that I'm doing and be in the room when I when I share stuff um, sign up for my rev up for the week email so just go to graymalcott.com forward slash links and then you'll see the thing there for rev up for the week and sign up for that and I send you a positive or productive thought every single Sunday night 4.05pm ready for the week ahead so sign up there and then you'll hear everything in terms of my updates on the book and everything else as and when they happen but that's it for this week so thanks for tuning in for another episode and we'll be back in two weeks time with another one um, we've got a really good one coming up that you're going to really love with a little bit of a kindness chat to it as well so that's coming up in two weeks time and until then take care bye for now <laughs>